Thank you for choosing this podcast. It's our pleasure to share with you the word of the Lord. Proverbs 23.12 says, Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to the words of knowledge. Join us as Pastor Jim Bunch shares God's word with the people at Christian Outreach Center in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Today, we are joining churches across this country, even around the world, in recognition of a day of prayer for the nation of Israel. This has been conducted for some time now. This is our first year of actually participating in it. And today's message is going to focus on the church's responsibility to Israel. And I'm going to take most of my material this morning from, materi- uh, from uh, the website of Praying for Israel. And Pastor Jack Hayford uh, put together most of what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. I would like to say at the outset that I appreciate Pastor Allen and his emphasis in our body on us being aware of Israel and prophecy, and the end-time events. I appreciate uh, Jack as well calling to my attention this particular day as an important day for the church to recognize. I believe that we, we are going to learn some things this morning about Israel and about our responsibility to them that may surprise us, may even convict us, <laughs> as it did me. And cause us to realize that there is something very, very significant that God is doing there and that we have a responsibility to God and to Israel to be aware, be mindful of it, be be praying, and do everything we can to support that nation. So I'm going to share that with you this morning. title of this message that... Pastor Hayford put together is, your people will be my people. Your people will be my people. The church's responsibility to Israel. And it's the story of Ruth and Naomi from the Old Testament, which many of you are very familiar with. And he says that this is a picture of the church and its relationship to Israel. Sort of an Old Testament illustration of the relationship that Israel and the church would have. Let's talk about, first of all, the challenge. And as we look at this story in the Old Testament, we see that it is a challenge to Gentile Christians to become the Ruth, or become a Ruth to Naomi, and to commit ourselves to an unbreakable covenant of love with the people of Israel. If you have your Bibles and you want to open them to the book of Judges, chapter 21 and verse 25, I want to call your attention to the setting of the days and time of Ruth. It says in Judges that in verse 20 and chapter 21 and verse 25, the Bible says that during the time of Ruth and Naomi, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a lawless time. 
There was a lack of leadership. There was, they would have a good judge and then a bad judge. A good judge, then a bad judge. And it was just a very difficult, difficult time for people during that, that era. And if you then just go to the little book of Ruth and start in chapter 1, you'll see that Ruth is faced with a difficult decision to leave her pagan roots in Moab, her family even, and join herself to Israel. And that decision, it was seen, became the best decision she ever made. Ruth ended up marrying Boaz, who was a prosperous Jewish farmer. Then Ruth, who had never borne any children before, would not only bear a son, but eventually through that son, this little Gentile woman would become the great-grandmother of King David and a key personage in the line of the Messiah himself who would one day be born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, friends... I'm going to remind you throughout this presentation this morning. When you think of Israel, this is what I want you to remember from this message. When you think of Israel, the Jewish nation, I want you to think about a God who laid out a plan very meticulously with great detail thousands of years before it ever came to pass. What I want you to remember from this message this morning is it's not so much about what Israel does or doesn't do as it, as it is about who God is. God, our God, is a God who knows the future. Our God is a God who makes covenant with men who break His covenants. But He keeps His covenant. Our God is a God who absolutely blows people's minds with his ability to say hundreds, thousands of years in advance, I will do this and specifically this, no matter what you hear or what happens, I will do this. I want you to remember that from this service this morning. This is the kind of God we serve. Now there are many parallels between Naomi and the Jewish people. Let's talk about that for a minute. Like Naomi, the Jewish people have been a kind of Moabite exile. The land of Israel until recent days or decades has been a place of famine. Orpah's relationship to Naomi is a picture of the way much of the church has often related to the Jewish people. Orpah, like Ruth, was a Gentile who married a Jew. But unlike her sister-in-law, Ruth, she decided to stay in her Gentile world in Moab and abandoned her Jewish mother-in-law at her greatest time of need. Orpah is a picture of much of the Gentile segment of the church that has not been able to understand and appreciate 
the inseparable bond between the church and Israel. Instead of identifying, identifying herself with the Jews, the Orpah, or Orpah Church, O-R-P-A-H, if you're trying to discern my language, O-R-P-A-H, not Oprah. <laughs> the Orpah Church has turned her back on Israel and maintains a religious culture that is virtually cut off from its Hebrew roots. Orpah, at first, intended to go forward with Naomi, according to verse 10 of chapter 1. However, at the end, the Orpah church decides to leave Naomi to fend for herself. Much of the church, like Orpah, is more talk than walk. Although the church owes its very salvation to the Jews, according to John chapter 4 and verse 22... Too often, the church abandons the very same Jews in their time of need. Someone said, I can understand or explain uh, Judaism apart from Christianity. But I cannot understand or explain Christianity apart from Judaism. Do you understand? What I'm saying. No Jews, no you. That simple. That's just putting it right down there on the lower shelf so everybody can get it. Let's talk about the history of the Orpah church and the Jews for just a second. At first, the church, like well-intentioned Orpah, had a desire to stick with the Jews. At the beginning of the church, Gentile believers worshipped right alongside of Jewish believers. They kept the Jewish feasts, and they had no intention of ever cutting themselves off from the nourishing sap of the olive tree of Israel that is pictured in Romans chapter 11, verse 17. Like Orpah, who in the end preferred to abandon Naomi and go her own way, most of the Gentile church has done the same thing. Within a generation of the crucifixion of Jesus, the Roman army had ransacked the city of Jerusalem and totally destroyed the temple and eventually much of the indigenous Jewish culture of Israel. Like Naomi in Moab, the Jews found themselves once again in foreign lands. Within a few hundred years, the church, for the most part, came to disregard the significance of the Jewish people. There arose a number of Christian theologians who saw the involvement of the Jews in cooperation with the Romans in the crucifixion of Jesus as the subsequent destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the subsequent, subsequent destruction of the temple in Jerusalem as a sign that God was finished with the Jews, with Israel. They saw that as a sign that God had rejected Israel. And once and for all, God would now form a new chosen people. And that new chosen people would be the church. They would become the Israel of God. They would supplant or take the place of 
the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. What was the result of that? Anti-Semitism was justified and it was all done in the name of good theology. John Chrysostom, Christ, <laughs> I'm having a hard time with this and it's got too many R's and O's and S's in it. An early church theologian who lived in the 4th century had this to say about the Jews in one of his sermons. They are murderers, destroyers, men possessed by the devil. They know only one thing, to satisfy their gullets, get drunk, to kill and maim one another. And this same man is, was exalted to sainthood. He was considered a saint in the church. Six centuries later, an event more hideous, more full of hatred for the Jews by so-called Christians would be revealed. The Crusaders are often remembered for their chivalry, their faith, and their zeal. But in reality, many of the Crusaders were cruel men who hated the Jews with a passion. As punishment for the Jews' role in the murder of Christ, the Crusaders took revenge on the Jewish people living in the Holy Land. In the year 1000, when the Crusaders first arrived in the Holy Land, there were 300,000 Jewish residents. By the time the Crusaders left the scene, less than 200 years later, only 1,000 Jewish families survived. The Nazis were not the first Holocaust. The church was. Anti-Semitism is even evident in the writings of the Protestant reformers. Martin Luther, whom you and I owe our tradition of worship, the Protestant church versus, say, the Catholic church, Martin Luther, we look to and we, we acclaim as the founder of Protestant style of worship and belief. Martin Luther was at first sympathetic to the Jews, believing that they would gladly receive his newfound gospel of justification by faith. But when they didn't receive the message, he became deeply embittered against the Jewish people. As a consequence... Luther became just as severe as the Roman church in his contempt for the Jews. He called the expulsion of the Jews from Germany and the destruction of their synagogues and books. He called for it. He called for it. Martin Luther called for them to be expulsed, it's, it's thrown out of Germany and destruction of all their synagogues and books. So then, would it come as a surprise to any of us that the Nazis, when they came to power in Germany, used the writings of Martin Luther and theologians like him to justify their policies of exterminating the Jews? The result was a holocaust in which six million Jews were exterminated. Unfortunately, much of the church stood idly by 
unwilling to lend a hand to the Jewish people. Paul taught us in Romans chapter 11 and verse 11, salvation comes to the Gentile to make Israel envious. However, the reality is the Jews do not envy our religion. Will we be like Oprah and turn our backs on Israel in her time of need? Or will we be like Ruth and cling to Israel, always ready to give her support and encouragement, especially as God is bringing her back to her homeland and ultimately to himself, to her God? Ruth then is a picture of what the Gentiles' part of the church should be in relation to Israel. In contrast to Oprah, look at Ruth and you will see how the church could become more and more like her in relationship to the Jewish people. To be a Ruth means loving the Jewish people unconditionally. Now, isn't it strange that we are willing to love sinners in our own nation unconditionally, but we're not willing to love Israel unconditionally? Why is it that we hold Israel to a higher standard than we do the sinner next door? Why is it that we feel like Israel ought to accept Jesus and know Jesus and receive him as Messiah more readily than the sinner next door? Why do we have that double standard in our thinking? Romans 1.8, Romans 1.14 through 16. This is what God says. Entreat me not, maybe in the margin of your Bible. Be not against me. Naomi was not very open at first to the idea of Ruth coming with her as she was returning to Israel. But Ruth was determined to come anyway. Ruth's love for Naomi would not be stopped by Naomi's rejection of her. She would stick by Naomi through thick and thin, even if she wasn't wanted. Verse 14 says, Ruth clung to her, that is to Naomi. It's interesting to read the prophecy given about Gentiles clinging to the Jews in the last days in Isaiah 14 verses 1 and 2. Verse 16, when we take Israel's God for our God, we must take his people for our people. Even if they at first would rather not cling too closely. To abandon God's chosen people Israel is to abandon a people that he loves according to his word with an everlasting love. How can any Christian who is called to conform to God's character ever lose or ever fail to love his people unconditionally? God has made an everlasting covenant with Israel. An everlasting covenant. In other words, he will never, ever change his mind. He will never ever alter his word concerning Israel. Just as he will never ever alter his love or his word concerning you. God is not going to stop loving you because you turn your back on him. God is not going to give up on you because you fail him. 
And God has said, I will never cast off totally the nation of Israel. I have promised that I will do these things and I have made an everlasting covenant with His people. That may be hard to understand and, and, and I'm going to show you before this message is over, I'm going to show you why we need to believe that. We need to embrace that. We need to participate in that. Because it is the greatest miracle that you will ever see if you live long enough on this earth to see God be enthroned, to see Jesus be enthroned as the Messiah of Israel in total and complete fulfillment of His Word. It will absolutely blow the minds of the world. And that's our God. That's who we serve. Some define a true friend as the first person who comes in when the world has gone out. We need to be that kind of friend. Three times Naomi insisted that Ruth return to Moab. Three times Naomi told Ruth, go back, go away, leave me alone, go home. But she wouldn't do it. Ruth was serious about her love for Naomi. Her love was like God's love for Israel, an unbreakable covenant of love. As Christians, our love for the Jewish people must, be not, must not be conditional love. We will love you if you accept our Jesus. Why do we subject the Jewish people to that kind of condition when we do not apply the same condition to our neighbor who is a sinner? True love is God's kind of love. It's unconditional love. Romans 11.28 reveals the kind of love demanded of the Christian for a Jew. Paul understood the difficulty that Christians have loving the Jewish people. Historically, very few Jewish people have accepted the gospel message. And in many times, in many cases, it has been violently opposed by the Jews. If an Orthodox Jewish family, if one of the members accepts Christ and becomes a Christian, he becomes an outcast in, in just uh, easy to understand language. They will say to him, you are dead to me. You don't exist anymore. But friend, that isn't just with the Jewish culture. That's with many cultures and many peoples. So we shouldn't single them out just because they gave us and have great knowledge of our Bible, especially the Old Testament. We shouldn't single them out and treat them any different than we would treat anyone else who rejects Jesus just because they reject Jesus. True love keeps us loving even when the one we love spurns us. But the kind of love that God pours into our hearts is a love that demands nothing in return. So to be a Ruth to Israel, we must love Israel unconditionally. To be a Ruth means also to be willing to stand with the Jews even if it means making a sacrifice. Now folks, this is going to come to fulfillment in your lifetime and my lifetime. Right now, this nation is on the brink because of the change in our politics is on the brink of abandoning the nation of Israel. After all of our efforts... This nation is vacillating between support of Israel 
and trying to bring some type of peace treaty to that region that will pacify Israel's enemies. It will never happen. Israel will never knuckle under. Israel will never compromise with those. By the way, I wish I had a map here this morning. Do any of you, have any of you looked at a, a map and looked at the land possessed by Israel right now? Have any of you went back to the Old Testament covenant that God made with Israel and have you took a map and mapped out the land that is promised to them? Have you ever done that? Can anybody tell me how much land God has promised to give Israel? Can anybody? Just You don't have to give me square miles. Jack, how much... Hang on, hang on a minute. Let me get a microphone to you. Where's the microphone? Um, I want you to hear this. Because people are constantly griping about Israel. Give up some land. Israel, give up some land to the Palestinians. And I want, to just, I want you to just hear how much Israel is going to wind up with, folks, before this thing is all said and done. Jack. Well, during Solomon's time when he reigned as king, Israel possessed most of the land that God promised. And they reigned during that time for peace. And that was the... Most, the, the, the longest time in the, in, that they actually occupied what God promised. And it, basically it's much, <laughs> about probably five times as much as they possess right now. If you look at a map, it'll go all the way through Lebanon into Syria, all the way up into Iraq where the Euphrates meets. And uh, probably over into Jordan, uh, probably twice, if not two and a half times as wide. And it's just, you know, vastly, a vast uh, difference. And he prom- like you said, he promised that. All the way back to Abraham. This is this is your land from now on. <laughs> and uh, the thing about it is, uh, every time this nation has turned our back on Israel and said, "You need to stop doing this. You need to stop doing that," we've suffered consequences in this nation. Amen. Last week, our wonderful president had his picture taken in the Oval Office with his feet up on the desk while he was talking to Benjamin Netanyahu. And he told Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, that if you attack Iran, you're on your own. And we had that picture taken. He had his picture taken, as I said, with his feet up on his desk. In the Arab world, when you show somebody the soles of your feet, you're showing extreme disrespect. Mm. In his own way, that's what he was doing to Benjamin Netanyahu by showing the soles of his feet. Mm. And he also told him you need to stop doing Israeli settlements. Last week, American Samoa got hit with an earthquake and hundreds of people got healed, killed with a tsunami. Hmm. That's what's going to happen to us again. We turn our back on Israel again in a major way, this country's going to get slapped like you've never seen before. Okay. Thank you, Jack. And to understand what he's describing to you ge- ge- geographically or ge- ge- to, uh, you know what I mean, <laughs> geography. Imagine the river Euphrates, the way it's described in the Bible is from the, the river Euphrates to the land of Egypt. In, from the river Euphrates in the east to the river Euphrates in the south to the cedars of Lebanon in the north. Now, if you took a map and, and you looked at that, it would include, as Jack says, it would include Iraq. <laughs> it would include much of that area right now where Arabs are living who are so anti-Israel. Who knows? 
But what part of the fulfillment of prophecy that's going to come to pass is, Iraq, is, is Israel does attack Iran and take it, you know, uh, and who knows what else. Listen, folks, we are living on such a precipice of time when events worldwide on the national scene could happen that quick to precipitate the coming of the Lord. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? I don't know if you realize this, but a lot of the information in the Bible where it gives signs of his return are, are really in reference to his coming back to rule and reign on this earth. That's the second phase of his coming. The first phase of his coming that we often refer to as the rapture of the church is a secret. Nobody knows it, but we do have signs that will precipitate, that will signal his return to stand with Israel, to rescue Israel and be enthroned as the Messiah of Israel. Now, if we are that close to those, to that event, and we are seeing signs on the national scene that, that, that look a lot like those signs in the Bible that refer to that coming, how close are we to his first coming, to his rapture of his church? Are we going to be asleep when Jesus comes for us, are we going to be giving in marriage and partying and riotous living and etc., etc., as described by Jesus himself? He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, are we going to be so wrapped up in our little, living our little lives, working our little work-a-day, workaholic schedules, and, and saying, I don't have time to go to church. I don't have time to talk to my brother or sister about the Lord. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to worship. And Jesus come in an instant. You know, I really believe that the rapture is going to catch a lot of Christians asleep. I really do. Because they're not looking for him. They're not anticipating. They're not even really wanting him to come. They don't care whether he comes. And I think we need to wake up and realize the seriousness of this in terms of our own soul, our own, uh, our own life. To be a Ruth then means to be willing to stand with the Jews even if it means making a sacrifice. In Ruth chapter 1 and verses 11 and 13 and verse 16, in verse number 9, Naomi asked that God would give each of them a place of rest with another husband. This became a key issue in the book. You see, marriage meant security for a woman. In the ancient Near East, a woman without a husband was in serious was in a serious situation because she lacked security. And widows were especially needy. Naomi referred to the, Le the Leverite custom in Israel in which a brother was responsible to marry his deceased brother's wife in order to conceive a son and perpetuate his brother's name and inheritance. Now, how would you like a custom like that here in America? Hmm? How many of you would like that? If your brother dies and he's married, you have to marry his wife. Hmm? Let's take a vote on that. No, let's... It depends on what she looks like. I know what you said, guys. I heard you. 
Naomi pointed out that this would not be possible in their case since she had no more sons. Naomi said, look, Ruth, I don't have any sons for you to marry. This is the end. Ruth knew that by going with Naomi, she was giving up opportunities to remarry someone else in Moab. Few Jews in Judah would ever consider marrying a Gentile woman. Ruth 1.16 So how many of us would have risked going with the Jews into the gas chambers by hiding Jews in our homes 50 years ago? Will we really be ready to go with the Jewish people in their greatest time of need? If we've got the heart of Ruth... We will. Those who commit themselves to Israel by sacrificially giving up things that they hold near and dear and using those things to support the Jewish people are in line for a blessing. It's called the Ruth blessing. And here it is. Whatever you sacrifice for Israel will be returned in manifold blessing. This is God's word. It's not my word. It's God's word. Ruth sacrificed everything. When she went with Naomi, she knew that they would have no one, no man, to take care of them. And they would be an outcast. And furthermore, she knew that she, as a Gentile, would be an even further or greater outcast than Naomi because Naomi was returning to her land. So Ruth really did sacrifice everything to go with Naomi. And she did it with humility and love. After many years of barrenness, she was given a son. We know that Obed, from Obed's loins, loins, the Messiah will come. We see that in Ruth and Naomi was the foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah. And that because Ruth embraced Naomi, Israel, she became, she became as it were, the fountainhead of the Messiah. Because from her would eventually come King David. And from the line of David would come the Messiah. Who knows what your life will be to others? Who knows what your witness will be? What impact What far-reaching consequences will be the result of your living for God or, God forbid, your backslidden, rebellious ways? Children watch us, don't they? Children watch us and they emulate us, don't they? Do you realize it isn't just children? It's those that we have been given by God the responsibility to disciple. Are we teaching them 
the way of the Lord. The Word of God tells us that the Jewish people will one day receive the Messiah and His forgiveness. Romans chapter 11, verse 26 and 27. Like Ruth, we as the church have a central role to play in the salvation and deliverance of Naomi, the Jewish people. But it will require more than just nice words and kisses on the cheek. It will require even more than the preaching of the gospel. It means being willing to love the Jews unconditionally, and it will mean demonstrating a sacrificial love. Now let me give you some promises that have never been rescinded. These are from the Word of God. Leviticus 25:23. The land is the Lord's land, and it is His to assign and dispose of. Listen to this scripture. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. You know which land he's talking about? That little piece of real estate over there that Israel's sitting on right now. God said, that land is mine. It will never be sold permanently. Deuteronomy 32 and 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Do you see how... (laughs) The future of Israel is inextricably tied to that land. That little piece of real estate. How many of you have ever traveled abroad, you've been in the military or something, and you have had to leave this land, and you went to another land, and you came back? Remember when you were in that land, how you missed this land? And when you came home to this land, you almost wanted to kiss the earth when you got off the plane or the ship? Israel is that way with that little piece of dirt over there. God has inextricably linked their fortunes and their future to that little piece of dirt. And He did it by divine providence and foreknowledge. And church, it's never changed since the first time uh, Joshua led them into that land. It's been theirs and it will be forever until God fulfills His promise to them. Second Chronicles 7.20 God says, if the people violate me, I will uproot them from my land which I have given them. In other words, Israel, if you are unfaithful, I will remove you from the land. Psalm 85, and he did that several times. Psalm 85 verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. These are promises. These are words from God that have never been rescinded. Isaiah 8.8 8 says that the land belongs to Father God, and it is the land of the Messiah. Isaiah 8, 8, 8, 8, And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. And in Jeremiah 2, 7, he says this, I brought you into a bountiful country, but when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. That resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem.
Ezekiel 38, 16. You will come up against my people. Now this is a prophecy that's going to come to pass in the last days when there will be a confrontation between Israel and her enemies. He says, you will come up against my people, Israel. I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you. In that little piece of land, God is going to concentrate all of the enemies of God and all the enemies of Israel, and in that one place, He's going to come and He is going to, He's going to be the captain of the host, and He's going to wipe out the enemies. That will be the war to end all wars. The Bible says in that war that the blood will run like a river. For God Himself will destroy thousands and thousands upon thousands of soldiers who come against Israel. You want to talk about a Star Wars, you want to talk about a battle to end all battles, friend, that is Armageddon. There are many other promises that have not been resented. Things that God said uniquely about Israel that have never been rescinded. Not only does the land belong to God, but also God has committed the land to Abraham and his offspring via Isaac forever. The loss of governance by Israel through sin and dispersion has not altered God's announced commitment to make it theirs forever. Remember what I said earlier? What I want you to get from this message is this fact. This Jesus we serve, he came from the roots of the Jewish people. He is the Messiah. We worship him as Lord. This Jesus and his Father God and the Holy Spirit have decreed that this little people called Israel will be favored by them forever. Do I like that? In a way it makes me jealous. Do I, do I question that? Yeah, to some extent. But fact is, he's God. That's what makes him God. Is he says, I will do this and he does this. Whether I agree or disagree. Whether I like or don't like. And what has he said about Israel? He has said, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. Friends, I don't think we have a choice in the matter. If you really look at it, we don't really have a choice whether to stand with Israel or not stand with Israel. If we really are going to be part of the blessing and receive a blessing... And as Jack so aptly pointed out, if we as a nation, even if we don't, even, even if we don't know God, even if we reject God altogether, history ought to tell us something. You can go back and you can study the history. How many nations have been broken by this one little people called Jews and Israel? How many of them are no more and Israel is? Learn the lessons of history. Here are some things that we can do. We can pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are admonished by Scripture to pray 
for the peace of Jerusalem. Second, we can seek to understand the Jewish roots of our faith. As I said earlier, I can explain Judaism apart from Christianity, but I cannot explain Christianity apart from Judaism. No Jews, no Jesus. Is that clear enough? Thirdly, we can express solidarity with Israel and the Jewish people. In today's times when you and I are interacting with other people and they speak disparagingly of Israel and they are believers, we can say to them, Do you know your Bible? Have you read your Bible? You need to understand that we, Christians and the Jews, are inextricably linked together for a purpose that God, when it's all, when, it, when, his, when His complete plan unfolds, just like, just like when He sent the Messiah and the cross and the redemption, people didn't understand that it was way back there, beginning in Genesis and flowing throughout the Old Testament. It was there. Right now, I'm telling you, that God's dealings with Israel is there and it flows throughout the Bible. And one day, God is going to show the whole world that He's smarter than they are. And that's what this thing is about. People who stand up and shake their fist in God's face and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Boys... When the final curtain falls and God unveils the whole thing, people are going to go, I could have had a Jesus. But it'll be too late. It'll be too late. They'll know then and the whole earth will know. And they will fall on their face and confess that He is Lord. But it'll be too late. And lastly, if you have the opportunity, make a journey to Israel. These promises to Israel reminded me as I was reading through them that God has made promises to us, you and me, for right now. And this is, this is one of those promises. And I'd like to read it to you from the book of James. James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Now, the King James will say, is any among you sick? But this is even better. Are you suffering? Is any among you suffering? That could be both physical and emotional or mental. It could be material, financial, relationship-wise. Are you suffering? I'm supposed to ask you that this morning. And then, listen to this. He or she, the one who is suffering, should pray. So, are you praying? I'm sure if you're a believer and you're suffering, you are praying. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is... Anyone among you sick, 
he should call for the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the Lord produced, and the land produced its fruit. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you merry? Sing praises. Are you sick? Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over you, anointing you with oil. And that's what we're going to do this morning. If you are suffering, we can offer our prayers with you and we will pray for you. If it is a sickness, be it of physical nature or mental nature, let us pray for you. Let us do that. And as Randy and the team comes back...